Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked room today, didn't you? How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret? Oliver Onions, The Beckoning Fair One, Part 8 To the man who pays heed to that voice within him, which warns him that twilight and danger are settling over his soul, terror is apt to appear an absolute thing, against which his heart must be safeguarded in a twink unless there is to take place an alteration in the whole range and scale of his nature. Mercifully, he is never far to look for safeguards. Of the immediate and small and common and momentary things of life, of usages and observances and modes and conventions, he builds up fortifications against the powers of darkness. He is even content that not terror only, but joy also, should be for working purposes be placed in the category of the absolute things, and the last treason he will commit would be that breaking down of terms and limits that strikes not at one man, but at the welfare of the souls of all. In his own person, Oleron began to commit this treason. He began to commit it by admitting the inexplicable and horrible to an increasing familiarity. He did it insensibly, unconsciously, by a neglect of the things that he now regarded it as an impertinence in Elsie Bengough to have prescribed. Two months before, the words a haunted house applied to his lovely, bemusing dwelling would have chilled his marrow. Now, his scale of sensation becoming depressed, he could ask, haunted by what? And remain unconscious that horror, when it can be proved to be relative, by so much loses its proper quality. He was setting aside the landmarks. Mists and confusion had begun to enwrap him and he was conscious of nothing so much as of a voracious inquisitiveness. He wanted to know. He was resolved to know. Nothing but the knowledge would satisfy him, and craftily he cast about for means whereby he might attain it. He might have spared his craft. The matter was the easiest imaginable. As in time past he had known in his writing moments when his thoughts had seemed to rise of themselves and to embody themselves in words not to be altered afterwards. So now the questions he put himself seemed to be answered even in the moment of their asking. There was exhilaration in the swift, easy processes. He had known no such joy in his own power since the days when his writing had been a daily freshness and a delight to him. It was almost as if the course he must pursue was being dictated to him. And the first thing he must do, of course, was to define the problem. He defined it in terms of mathematics. Granted that he had not the place to himself, granted that the old house had inexpressibly caught and engaged his spirit, granted that by virtue of the common denominator of the place, this unknown co-tenant stood in some relation to himself, what next? Clearly, the nature of the other numerator must be ascertained. And how? Ordinarily, this would not have seemed simple, but to Oleron it was now pellucidly clear. The key, of course, lay in his half-written novel, or rather in both Romilly's, the old and the proposed new one. A little while before, Oleron would have thought himself mad to have embraced such an opinion. Now he accepted the dizzying hypothesis without a quiver. He began to examine the first and second Romilies. From the moment of his doing so, the thing advanced by leaps and bounds. Swiftly he reviewed the history of the Romilly of the fifteen chapters. He remembered clearly now that he had found her insufficient on the very first morning on which he had sat down to work in his new place. Other instances of this aversion leaped up to confirm his obscure investigation. There had come the night when he had hardly forborne to throw the whole thing into the fire, and the next morning he had begun the planning of the new Romilly. It had been on that morning that Mrs. Barrett, overhearing him humming a brief phrase at the dripping of a tap the night before had suggested, had informed him that he was singing some air he had never in his life heard before, called The Beckoning Fair One the beckoning fair one. With scarcely a pause in thought, he continued, 
The first Romilly had been indefinitely thrown over. The second had instantly fastened herself upon him, clamouring for birth in his brain. He even fancied now, looking back, that there had been something like passion, hate almost, in the supplanting, and that more than once a stray thought given to his discarded creation had, it was astonishing how credible Oleron found the almost unthinkable idea, had offended the supplanter. Yet that a malignancy almost homicidal should be extended to his fiction's poor mortal prototype. In spite of his inuring to a scale in which the horrible was now a thing to be fingered and turned this way and that, a good God broke from Oleron. This intrusion of the first Romilly's prototype into his thought again was a factor that for the moment brought his inquiry into the nature of his problem to a termination. The mere thought of Elsie was fatal to anything abstract. For another thing, he could not yet think of that letter of Barrett's, nor of a little scene that had followed it without a mounting of colour and a quick contraction of the brow. For wisely or not, he had had that argument out at once. Striding across the square on the following morning, he had bearded Barrett on his own doorstep. Coming back again a few minutes later, he had been strongly of the opinion that he had only made matters worse. The man had been vagueness itself. He had not been to be either challenged or browbeaten into anything more definite than a muttered farrago in which the words, Certain things, Mrs. Barrett, respectable ass, if the cap fits, proceedings that shall be nameless, had been constantly repeated. Nor that I make any charge, he had concluded. Charge? Oleron had cried. I have my ideas of things, and I don't doubt you have yours. Ideas? Mine? Oleron had cried wrathfully, immediately dropping his voice as heads had appeared at windows of the square. Look you here, my man. You've an unwholesome mind which probably you can't help, but a tongue which you can help and shall, if there is a breath of this repeated. I'll not be talked to on my own doorstep like this by anybody, Barrett had blustered. You shall, and I'm doing it. Don't you forget there's a god above all who has said... You're a low scandal-monger, and so forth, continuing badly what was already badly begun. Oleron had returned wrathfully to his own house, and thenceforward, looking out of his windows, had seen Barrett's face at odd times, lifting blinds or peering round curtains, as if he sought to put himself in possession of heaven knew what evidence, in case it should be required of him. The unfortunate occurrence made certain minor differences in Oleron's domestic arrangements. Barrett's tongue, he gathered, had already been busy. He was looked at askance by the dwellers of the square, and he judged it better, until he should be able to obtain other help, to make his purchases of provisions a little farther afield, rather than at the small shops of the immediate neighbourhood. For the rest, housekeeping was no new thing to him, and he would resume his old bachelor habits. Besides, he was deep in certain rather abstruse investigations in which it was better that he should not be disturbed. He was looking out of his window one midday, rather tired, not very well, and glad that it was not very likely he would have to stir out of doors when he saw Elsie Bengough crossing the square towards his house. The weather had broken. It was a raw and gusty day, and she had to force her way against the wind that set her ample skirts bellying about her opulent figure, and her veils spinning and streaming behind her. Oleron acted swiftly and instinctively. Seizing his hat, he sprang to the door and descended the stairs at a run. A sort of panic had seized him. She must be prevented from setting foot in the place. As he ran along the alley, he was conscious that his eyes went up to the eaves, as if something drew them. He did not know that the slate might not accidentally fall. He met her at the gate and spoke with curious volubleness. This is really too bad, Elsie, just as I'm urgently called away. I'm afraid it can't be helped, though, and that you have to think me an inhospitable beast. He poured it out, just as it came into his head. She asked if he was going to town. Yes, yes, to town, he replied. I've got to call on um, Chambers. You know Chambers, don't you? No, I remember you don't. Big man, you once saw me with. I ought to have gone yesterday, and this he felt to be a brilliant effort. And he's going out of town this afternoon, uh, to Brighton. I had a letter from him this morning. He took her arm and led her up the square. 
She had to remind him his way to town lay in the other direction. Of course, how stupid of me, he said with a little loud laugh. I'm so used to going the other way with you, of course. It's the other way to the bus. Will you come along with me? I'm so awfully sorry it's happened like this. They took the street to the bus terminus. This time Elsie bore no signs of having gone through interior struggles. If she detected anything unusual in his manner, she made no comment. And he, seeing her calm, began to talk less recklessly through silences. By the time they reached the bus terminus, nobody seeing the pallid-faced man without an overcoat and the large, ample-skirted girl at his side would have supposed that one of them was ready to sink on his knees for thankfulness that he had, as he believed, saved the other from a wildly unthinkable danger. They mounted to the top of the bus, Oleron protesting that he should not miss his overcoat, and that he found the day, if anything, rather oppressively hot. They sat down on a front seat. Now that this meeting was forced upon him, he had something else to say that would make demands upon his tact. It had been on his mind for some time, and was indeed peculiarly difficult to put. He revolved it for some minutes, and then, remembering the success of his story of a sudden call to town, cut the knot of his difficulty with another lie. "'I'm uh, thinking of going away for a little while, Elsie,' he said. She merely said, "'Oh, somewhere for a change. I need a change. I, I think I shall go tomorrow, or the day after. Yes, uh, tomorrow, I think. Yes,' she replied. "'I don't know quite how long I shall be,' he continued. "'I shall have to let you know when I'm back.' "'Yes, let me know,' she replied in an even tone. The tone was, for her, suspiciously even. He was a little uneasy. "'You uh, don't ask me where I'm going,' he said, with a little cumbrous effort to rally her. She was looking straight before her past the bus driver. "'I know,' she said. He was startled. "'How? You know?' "'You're not going anywhere,' she replied. He found not a word to say. It was a minute or so before she continued, in the same controlled voice she had employed from the start. You're not going anywhere. You weren't going out this morning. You only came out because I appeared. Don't behave as if we were strangers, Paul. A flush of pink had mounted to his cheeks. He noticed that the wind had given her the pink of early rhubarb. Still, he found nothing to say. Of course you ought to go away, she continued. I don't know whether you look at yourself often in the glass, but you're rather noticeable. Several people have turned to look at you this morning, so of course you ought to go away. But you won't. And I know why. He shivered, coughed a little, and then broke silence. Then, if you know, there's no use in continuing this discussion, he said curtly. Not for me, perhaps. But there is for you, she replied. Shall I tell you what I know? No, he said in a voice slightly raised. No, she asked, her round eyes earnestly on him. No. Again, he was getting out of patience with her. Again he was conscious of the strain. Her devotion and fidelity and love plagued him. She was only humiliating both herself and him. It would have been bad enough had he ever, by word or deed, given her cause for thus fastening herself on him. But there, that was the worst of that kind of life for a woman. Women such as she, business women, in and out of offices all the time, always, whether they realised it or not, made comradeship a cover for something else. They accepted the unconventional status, came and went freely as men did, were honestly taken by men at their own valuation, and then it turned out to be the other thing after all, and they went and fell in love. No wonder there was gossip in shops and squares and public houses. In a sense, the gossipers were in the right of it, independent, yet not efficient, with some of womanhood's graces foregone, and yet with all the woman's hunger and need, half sophisticated yet not wise. Oleron was tired of it all, and it was time he told her so. I suppose, he said tremblingly, looking down between his knees, I suppose the real trouble is in the life women who earn their own living are obliged to lead. He couldn't tell in what sense she took the lame generality. She merely replied, I suppose so. It can't be helped, he continued, but you do sacrifice a great deal. She agreed, a good deal. And then she added after a moment, What, for instance? 
You may or may not be gradually attaining a new status, but you're in a false position today. It was very likely, she said. She hadn't thought of it much in that light. And, he continued desperately, you're bound to suffer. Your most innocent acts are misunderstood. Motives you never dreamed of are attributed to you. And in the end it comes to... He hesitated a moment and then took the plunge to the sidelong look and the leer. She took his meaning with perfect ease. She merely shivered a little as she pronounced the name. Barrett. His silence told her the rest. Anything further that was to be said must come from her. It came as the bus stopped at a stage and fresh passengers mounted the stairs. You'd better get down here and go back, Paul, she said. I understand perfectly. Perfectly. It isn't Barrett. You'd be able to deal with Barrett. It's merely convenient for you to say it is Barrett. I know what it is. But you said I wasn't to tell you that. Very well. But before you go, let me tell you why I came up this morning. In a dull tone, he asked her why. Again, she looked straight before her. She replied, I came to force your hand. Things couldn't go on as they have been going, you know. And now that's all over. All over, he repeated stupidly. All over. I want you now to consider yourself, as far as I'm concerned, perfectly free. I make only one reservation. He hardly had the spirit to ask her what it was. If I merely need you, she said, please don't give that a thought. That's nothing. I shan't come near for that. But, she dropped her voice, if you're in need of me, Paul, and I shall know if you are, and you will be, then I shall come, no matter what cost. You understand that? He could only groan. So, that's understood, she concluded. And I think that's all. Now go back. I should advise you to walk back for your shivering. Goodbye. She gave him a cold hand and he descended. He turned on the edge of the curb as the bus started again. For the first time in all the years he had known her, she parted from him with no smile and no wave of her long arm. Nine. He stood on the curb, plunged in misery, looking after her as long as she remained in sight, but almost instantly with her disappearance he felt the heaviness lift from his spirit. She had given him his liberty, true. There was a sense in which he had never parted with it, but now was no time for splitting hairs. He was free to act, and all was clear ahead. Swiftly the sense of lightness grew on him. It became a positive rejoicing in his liberty, and before he was halfway home, he had decided what must be done next. The vicar of the parish in which his dwelling was situated lived within ten minutes of the square. To his house, Oleron turned his steps. It was necessary that he should have all the information he could get about this old house with the insurance marks and the sloping to-let boards, and the vicar was the person most likely to be able to furnish it. This last preliminary out of the way, and aha, Oleron chuckled, things might be expected to happen. But he gained less information than he hoped for. The house, the vicar said, was old, but there needed no vicar to tell Oleron that. It was reputed, Oleron pricked up his ears, to be haunted. But there were few old houses about which some such rumour didn't circulate among the ignorant, and the deplorable lack of faith of the modern world, the vicar thought, did not tend to dissipate these superstitions. For the rest, his manner was the soothing manner of one who prefers not to make statements without knowing how they will be taken by his hearer. Oleron smiled as he perceived this. You may leave my nerves out of the question, he said. How long has the place been empty? A dozen years, I should say, the vicar replied. And the last tenant, did you know him or her? Oleron was conscious of a tingling of his nerves as he offered the vicar the alternative of sex. Him, said the vicar, a man, if I remember rightly. His name was Madley, an artist. He was a great recluse, seldom went out of the place, and... The vicar hesitated and then broke into a little gush of candour. And since you appear to have come for this information, and since it's better that the truth should be told than that garbled versions should get about, I don't mind saying that this man madly died there under somewhat unusual circumstances. 
It was ascertained at the post-mortem that there was not a particle of food in his stomach, though he was found not to be without money, and his frame was simply worn out. Suicide was spoken of, but you'll agree with me that deliberate starvation is, to say the least, an uncommon form of suicide. An open verdict was returned. Ah, said Oleron, does there happen to be any comprehensive history of this parish? No, partial ones only. I myself am not guiltless of having made a number of notes on its purely ecclesiastical history, its registers and so forth, which I shall be happy to show you if you would care to see them. But it's a large parish. I have only one curate, and my leisure, as you will readily understand. The extent of the parish and the scantiness of the vicar's leisure occupied the remainder of the interview, and Oleron thanked the vicar, took his leave, and walked slowly home. He walked slowly for a reason, twice turning away from the house within a stone's throw of the gate, and taking another turn of twenty minutes or so. He had a very ticklish piece of work now before him. It required the greatest mental concentration. It was nothing less than to bring his mind, if he might, into such a state of unpreoccupation and receptivity that he should see the place as he had seen it on that morning when his removal accomplished he had sat down to begin the sixteenth chapter of his first Romilly. For, could he recapture that first impression, he now hoped for far more from it. Formerly he had carried no end of mental lumber. Before the influence of the place had been able to find him out at all, it had had the inertia of those dreary chapters to overcome. No results had shown. The process had been one of slow saturation, charging, filling up to a brim. But now he was light unburdened, rid at last both of that Romilly and of her prototype. Now for the new unknown, coy, jealous, bewitching, beckoning fair. At half past two of the afternoon, he put his key into the Yale lock, entered, and closed the door behind him. His fantastic attempt was instantly and astonishingly successful. He could have shouted with triumph as he entered the room. It was as if he had escaped into it. Once more, as in the days when his writing had had a daily freshness and wonder and promise for him, he was conscious of that new ease and mastery and exhilaration and release. The air of the place seemed to hold more oxygen, as if his own specific gravity had changed. His very tread seemed less ponderable. The flowers in the bowls, the fair proportions of the meadow-sweet-coloured panels and mouldings, the polished floor and the lofty and faintly starred ceiling fairly laughed their welcome. Oleron actually laughed back and spoke aloud. Oh, you're pretty, pretty, he flattered it. Then he lay down on his couch. He spent that afternoon as a convalescent who expected a dear visitor might have spent it, in a delicious vacancy, smiling now and then as if in his sleep, and ever lifting drowsy and contented eyes to his alluring surroundings. He lay thus until darkness came, and with darkness, the nocturnal noises of the old house. But if he waited for any specific happening, he waited in vain. He waited similarly in vain on the morrow, maintaining, though with less ease, that sensitised plate-like condition of his mind. Nothing occurred to give it an impression. Whatever it was which he so patiently wooed, it seemed to be both shy and exacting. Then, on the third day, he thought he understood. A look of gentle drollery and cunning came into his eyes, and he chuckled. Oh, 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 well, if the wind sits in that quarter, we must see what else there is to be done. What is there now? No, I won't send for Elsie. We don't need a wheel to break the butterfly on. We won't go to those lengths, my butterfly. He was standing, musing, thumbing his lean jaw, looking aslant. Suddenly, he crossed to his hall, took down his hat and went out. My lady is coquettish, is she? Well, we'll see what a little neglect will do. He chuckled as he went down the stairs. He sought a railway station, got onto a train, and spent the rest of the day in the country. Oh, yes, Oleron thought. He was the man to deal with fair ones who beckoned and invited and then took refuge in shyness and hanging back. He didn't return until after eleven that night. Now, my fair beckoner, he murmured as he walked along the alley and felt in his pocket for his keys. Inside his flat, he was perfectly composed, perfectly deliberate, 
exceedingly careful not to give himself away, as if to intimate that he intended to retire immediately, he lighted only a single candle, and as he set out with it on his nightly round, he affected to yawn. He went first into his kitchen. There was a full moon and a lozenge of moonlight, almost peacock blue by contrast with his candle flame, lay on the floor. The window was uncurtained, and he could see the reflection of the candle, and faintly that of his own face as he moved about. The door of the powder closet stood a little jar, and he closed it before sitting down to remove his boots on the chair with a cushion made of the folded harp bag. From the kitchen he passed to the bathroom. There another slant of blue moonlight cut the windowsill and lay across the pipes on the wall. He visited his seldom-used study and stood for a moment gazing at the silvered roofs across the square. Then, walking straight through his sitting-room, his stockinged feet making no noise, he entered his bedroom and put the candle on the chest of drawers. His face all this time wore no expression save that of tiredness. He had never been wilier nor more alert. His small bedroom fireplace was opposite the chest of drawers on which the mirror stood, and his bed and the window occupied the remaining sides of the room. Oleron drew down his blind, took off his coat, and then stooped to get his slippers from under the bed. He could have given no reason for the conviction, but the manifestation that for two days had been withheld was close at hand he never for an instant doubted. Nor, though he could not form the faintest guess of the shape it might take, did he experience fear. Startling or surprising it might be, he was prepared for that, but that was all. His scale of sensation had become depressed, his hand moved this way and that under the bed in search of the slippers. But, for all his caution and method and preparedness, his heart all at once gave a leap and a pause that was almost horrid. He had found the slippers but he was still on his knees, save for this circumstance, he would have fallen. The bed was a low one, the groping for the slippers accounted for the turn of his head to one side, and he was careful to keep the attitude until he had partly recovered his self-possession. When presently he rose, there was a drop of blood on his lower lip, where he had caught at it with his teeth, and his watch had jerked out of the pocket of his waistcoat, and was dangling at the end of its short leather guard. Then. Before the watch had ceased its little oscillation, he was himself again. In the middle of his mantelpiece there stood a picture, a portrait of his grandmother. He placed himself before this picture so that he could see in the glass of it the steady flame of the candle that burned behind him on the chest of drawers. He could also see in the picture glass the little glancings of light from the bevels and facets of the objects about the mirror and candle. But he could see more. These twinklings and reflections and re-reflections did not change their position, but there was one gleam that had motion. It was fainter than the rest, and it moved up and down through the air. It was a reflection of the candle on Oleron's black vulcanite comb, and each of its downward movements was accompanied by a silky and crackling rustle. Oleron, watching what went on in the glass of his grandmother's portrait, continued to play his part. He felt for his dangling watch and began slowly to wind it up. Then, for a moment, ceasing to watch, he began to empty his trouser pockets and place methodically in a little row on the mantelpiece the pennies and halfpennies he took from them. The sweeping, minutely electric noise filled the whole bedroom, and had Oleron altered his point of observation, he could have brought the dim gleam of the moving comb so into position that it would almost have outlined his grandmother's head. Any other head of which it might have been following the outline was invisible. Oleron finished the emptying of his pockets, then under cover of another simulated yawn, not so much summoning his resolution as overmastered by an exorbitant curiosity, he swung suddenly round. That which was being combed was still not to be seen, but the comb did not stop. It had altered its angle a little, and had moved a little to the left. It was passing in fairly regular sweeps from a point rather more than five feet from the ground, in a direction roughly vertical, to another point a few inches below the level of the chest of drawers. Oleron continued to act to admiration. He walked to his little washstand in the corner, poured out water, 
and began to wash his hands. He removed his waistcoat and continued his preparations for bed. The combing did not cease and he stood for a moment in thought. Again his eyes twinkled. The next was very cunning. Hmm, I think I'll read for a quarter of an hour, he said aloud. He passed out of the room. He was away a couple of minutes. When he returned again, the room was suddenly quiet. He glanced at the chest of drawers. The comb lay still between the collar he had removed and a pair of gloves. Without hesitation, Oleron put out his hand and picked it up. It was an ordinary eighteen-penny comb, taken from a card in a chemist's shop, of a substance of a definite specific gravity and no more capable of rebellion against the laws by which it existed than are the worlds that keep their orbits through the void. Oleron put it down again. Then he glanced at the bundle of papers he held in his hand. What he had gone to fetch had been the fifteen chapters of the original Romilly. Hmm, he muttered as he threw the manuscript into a chair. As I thought, she's just blindly, ragingly, murderously jealous. On the night after that, and on the following night, and for many nights and days, so many that he began to be uncertain about the count of them, Oleron courting, cajoling, neglecting, threatening, beseeching, eaten out with unappeased curiosity, and regardless that his life was becoming one consuming passion and desire, continued his search for the unknown co-numerator of his abode. 10. As time went on, it came to pass that few except postmen mounted Oleron's stairs, and since men who do not write letters receive few, even the postman's tread became so infrequent that it was not heard more than once or twice a week. There came a letter from Oleron's publishers asking when they might expect to receive the manuscript of his new book. He delayed for some days to answer it and finally forgot. A second letter came which he also failed to answer. He received no third. The weather grew bright and warm. The privet bushes among the chopper-like notice boards flowered and in the streets where Oleron did his shopping, the baskets of flower women lined the curbs. Oleron purchased flowers daily. His room clamoured for flowers, fresh and continually renewed, and Oleron did not stint its demands. Nevertheless, the necessity for going out to buy them became to irk him more and more, and it was with a greater and ever greater sense of relief that he returned home again. He began to be conscious that again his scale of sensation had suffered a subtle change, a change that was not restoration to its former capacity, but an extension, an enlarging that once more included terror. It admitted it in an entirely new form, Lux Orco, Tenebrae Jovi. The name of this terror was agoraphobia. Oleron had begun to dread air and space and the horror that might pounce upon the unguarded back. Presently, he so contrived it that his food and flowers were delivered daily at his door. He rubbed his hands when he had hit upon this expedient. That was better. Now he could please himself whether he went out or not. Quickly he was confirmed in his choice. It became his pleasure to remain immured. But he was not happy. Or if he was, his happiness took an extraordinary turn. He fretted discontentedly, could sometimes have wept for mere weakness and misery, and yet he was dimly conscious that he would not have exchanged his sadness for all the noisy mirth of the world outside. And speaking of noise, noise, much noise now, caused him the acutest discomfort. It was hardly more to be endured than that newborn fear that kept him on the increasingly rare occasions when he did go out, sidling close to walls and feeling friendly railings with his hand. He moved from room to room softly and in slippers, and sometimes stood for many seconds closing a door so gently that not a sound broke the stillness that was in itself a delight. Sunday now became an intolerable day for him, for since the coming of the fine weather, there had begun to assemble in the square under his windows each Sunday morning certain members of the sect to which the long-nosed Barrett adhered. These came with a great drum and large brass-bellied instruments, men and women uplifted, anguished voices, struggling with their god, and Barrett himself with upraised face and closed eyes and working brows, 
prayed that the sound of his voice might penetrate the ears of all unbelievers, as it certainly did Alderon's. One day, in the middle of one of these rhapsodies, Alderon sprang to his blind and pulled it down, and heard as he did so his own name made the subject of a fresh torrent of outpouring. And sometimes, but not as expecting a reply, Oleron stood still and called softly. Once or twice he called, Romilly, and then waited, but more often his whispering did not take the shape of a name. There was one spot in particular of his abode that he began to haunt with increasing persistency. This was just within the opening of his bedroom door. He had discovered one day that by opening every door in his place, always excepting the outer one, which he only opened unwillingly, and by placing himself on this particular spot, he could actually see to a greater or less extent into each of his five rooms without changing his position. He could see the whole of his sitting room, all of his bedroom except the part hidden by the open door, and glimpses of his kitchen, bathroom, and of his rarely used study. He was often in this place, breathless and with his finger on his lip. One day, as he stood there, he suddenly found himself wondering whether this madly, of whom the vicar had spoken, had ever discovered the strategic importance of the bedroom entry. Light, moreover, now caused him greater disquietude and did darkness. Direct sunlight, of which as the sun passed daily round the house, each of his rooms had now its share, was like a flame in his brain and even diffused light was a dull and numbing ache. He began at successive hours of the day, one after another, to lower his crimson blinds. He made short and daring excursions in order to do this, but he was ever so careful to leave his retreat open, in case he should have sudden need of it. Presently, this lowering of the blinds had become a daily methodical exercise, and his rooms, when he had been on his round, had the blood-red half-light of a photographer's darkroom. One day, as he drew down the blind of his little study and backed in good order out of the room again, he broke into a soft laugh. That bilks Mr. Barrett, he said, and the baffling of Barrett continued to afford him mirth for an hour. But on another day, soon after, he had a fright that left him trembling also for an hour. He had seized the cord to darken the window over the seat in which he had found the harp bag, and was standing with his back well protected in the embrasure when he thought he saw the tail of a black-and-white check skirt disappear round the corner of the house, he couldn't be sure. He had to run to the window of the other wall, which was blinded. The skirt must have already been passed, but he was almost sure that it was Elsie. He listened in an agony of suspense for her tread on the stairs. But no tread came, and after three or four minutes he drew a long breath of relief. By Jove, but that would have compromised me horribly, he muttered and he continued to mutter from time to time, horribly compromising. No woman would stand that, not any kind of a woman. Oh, compromising the extreme. Yet he was not happy. He could not have assigned the cause of the fits of quiet weeping which took him sometimes. They came and went, like the fitful illumination of the clouds that travelled over the square, and perhaps, after all, if he was not happy, he was not unhappy. Before he could be unhappy, something must have been withdrawn. And nothing had yet been withdrawn from him, for nothing had been granted. He was waiting for that granting in that flower-laden, frightfully enticing apartment of his, with the pith-white walls tinged and subdued by the crimson blinds to a blood-like gloom. He paid no heed to it that his stock of money was running perilously low, nor that he had ceased to work. Ceased to work? He had not ceased to work. They knew very little about it, who supposed that Oleron had ceased to work. He was, in truth, only now beginning to work. He was preparing such a work, such a work, such a mistress was a making in the gestation of his art. Let him but get this period of probation and poignant waiting over, and men should see. How should men know her, this fair one of Oleron's, until Oleron himself knew her? Lovely, radiant creations are not thrown off like how-do-you-do's. The men to whom it is committed to father them must weep wretched tears, as Oleron did, must swell with vain presumptuous hopes, as Oleron did, must pursue, as Oleron pursued, the capricious, fair, mocking, slippery, eager spirit that ever eluding, ever sees to it that the chase does not slacken. Let Oleron but hunt this huntress a little longer, 
He would have a sparkling and panting in his arms, yet, oh no, they were very far from the truth to suppose that Oleron had ceased to work. And if all else was falling away from Oleron, gladly he was letting it go. So do we all when our fair ones beckon. Quite at the beginning we wink and promise ourselves that we will put her ladyship through her paces, neglect her for a day, turn her own jealous wiles against her, flout and ignore her when she comes wheedling. Perhaps there lurks within us all the time a heartless sprite who is never fooled, but in the end all falls away. She beckons, beckons, and all goes. And so Oleron kept his strategic post within the frame of his bedroom door and watched and waited and smiled with his finger on his lips. It was his duteous service, his worship, his troth-plighting, all that he had ever known of love. And when he found himself, as he now and again did, hating the dead man madly and wishing that he had never lived, he felt that that too was an acceptable service. But as he thus prepared himself, as it were, for a marriage, and moped and chafed more and more that the bride made no sign. He made a discovery that he ought to have made weeks before. It was through a thought of the dead madly that he made it. Since that night when he had thought in his greenness that a little studied neglect would bring the lovely beckoner to her knees, and had made use of her own jealousy to banish her, he had not set eyes on those fifteen discarded chapters of Romilly. He had thrown them back into the window-seat, forgotten their very existence, but his own jealousy of madly put him in mind of hers, of her jilted rival of flesh and blood, and he remembered them fool that he had been. Had he then expected his desire to manifest herself where there still existed the evidence of his divided allegiance? What? And she with a passion so fierce and centred that it had not hesitated at the destruction twice attempted of a rival? Fool that he had been! But if that was all the pledge and sacrifice she required, she should have it, oh yes, and quickly. He took the manuscript from the window seat and brought it to the fire. He kept his fire always burning now. The warmth brought out the last vestige of odour of the flowers with which his room was banked. He didn't know what time it was, long since he had allowed his clock to run down. It had seemed a foolish measure of time in regard to the stupendous things that were happening to Oleron but he knew it was late. He took the Romilly manuscript and knelt before the fire. But he hadn't finished removing the fastening that held the sheets together before he suddenly gave a start, turned his head over his shoulder, and listened intently. The sound he had heard had not been loud. It had, indeed, been no more than a tap, twice or thrice repeated, but it had filled Oleron with alarm. His face grew dark as it came again. He heard a voice outside on his landing. Paul, Paul, it was Elsie's voice. Paul, I know you're in. I want to see you. He cursed her under his breath, but kept perfectly still. He did not intend to admit her. Paul, you're in trouble. I believe you're in danger. At least come to the door. Oleron smothered a low laugh. It somehow amused him that she, in such danger herself, should talk to him of his danger. Well, if she was, serve her right. She knew or said she knew all about it. Paul, 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 he mimicked her under his breath. Oh, Paul, it's horrible. Horrible, was it, thought Oleron. Then let her get away. I only want to help you, Paul. I didn't promise not to come if you'd needed me. He was impervious to the pitiful sob that interrupted the low cry. The devil take the woman. Should he shout to her to go away and not come back? No, let her call and knock and sob. She had a gift for sobbing. She mustn't think her sobs would move him. They irritated him, so that he set his teeth and shook his fist at her. But that was all. Let her sob. Paul! Paul! With his teeth hard set, he dropped the first page of Romilly into the fire. Then he began to drop the rest in, sheet by sheet. For many minutes the calling behind his door continued. Then, suddenly, it ceased. He heard the sound of feet slowly descending the stairs. He listened for the noise of a fall or a cry or the crash of a piece of the handrail of the upper landing. But none of these things came. She was spared. Apparently her rival suffered her to crawl abject and beaten away. Oleron heard the passing of her steps under his window. Then she was gone. 
He dropped the last page into the fire and then, with a low laugh, rose. He looked fondly round his room. Lucky to get away like that, he remarked. She wouldn't have got away if I'd given her as much as a word or a look. What devils these women are. But no, I wouldn't say that. One of them showed forbearance. Who showed forbearance and what was forborne? Ah, Alderon knew contempt, no doubt. Had been at the bottom of it, but that didn't matter. The pestering creature had been allowed to go unharmed. Yes, she was lucky. Alderon hoped she knew it. And now, 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 for his reward. Alderon crossed the room. All his doors were open, his eyes shone as he placed himself within that of his bedroom. Fool that he had been not to think of destroying the manuscript sooner. How, in a house full of shadows, should he know his own shadow? How, in a house full of noises, distinguish the summons he felt to be at hand? Ah, trust him, he would know. The place was full of a jugglery of dim lights. The blind at his elbow that allowed the light of a street lamp to struggle vaguely through, the glimpse of greeny-blue moonlight seen through the distant kitchen door, the sulky glow of the fire under the black ashes of the burnt manuscript, the glimmering of the tulips and the moon daisies and narcissi in the bowls and jugs and jars. These did not so trick and bewilder his eyes that he wouldn't know his own. It was he, not she, who had been delaying the shadowy bridal. He hung his head for a moment in mute acknowledgement, then he bent his eyes on the deceiving, puzzling gloom again. He would have called her name had he known it. But now he would not ask her to share even a name with the other. His own face within the frame of the door glimmered white as a narcissi in the darkness. A shadow light as fleece seemed to take shape in the kitchen. A time had been when Olron would have said that a cloud had passed over the unseen moon. The low illumination on the blind at his elbow grew dimmer. The time had been when Olron would have concluded that the lamplighter going on his rounds had turned low the flame of the lamp. The fire settled, letting down the black and charred papers. A flower fell from a bowl and lay indistinct upon the floor. All was still. And then a stray draught moved through the old house, passing before Oleron's face. Suddenly, inclining his head, he withdrew a little from the door jamb. The wandering draught caused the door to move a little on its hinges. Oleron trembled violently, stood for a moment longer, and then, putting his hand out to the knob, softly drew the door to, sat down on the nearest chair, and waited, as a man might await the calling of his name that should summon him to some weighty high and privy audience. So there we are, that is part three of The Beckoning Fair One by Oliver Onions, and we're still not finished. We've got another, there are th- uh, 12 sections in it, so we've done 10, so we've got another two, so that this last, next week, will be part four, and then we'll be done. It's a good story, it just goes on too long. I would have cut a fair bit of it, to be honest, I would have cut all the musings and stuff out. But there we are. But he's, he's very, there are certain parts he, he does really, really well. I like the story, but it's a lot of work, and I knew it would be. It's a novella, really. Um, I have the same issue with The Turning of the Screw and Christmas Carol. If I do, which I would quite like to do those, but they're so long. The podcast numbers have been going down a little recently. Shock horror. And I guess it's because people are going back to work and doing other things rather than just being locked up in the houses, having to listen to podcasts and me drone on about stuff. So anyway... Okay, what's to say? I'm going to be pretty quick because if it's either you've waited for this all week and you're desperately excited to um, hear me talk about it, or uh, you watch, you know, it is sometime in the future. So this is going to be released in about three weeks, and you may be even listening to it like two, three months in advance. So you probably just want to binge, listen to it and get on with it and not have me wrapped on. Anyway, part three. So we start off with section eight. And he starts going on. The first bit is like him musing about, and I actually think, what are you going on about? He's, uh, he's musing about something or other. And that is a bit tedious and I would have, I would have chopped that. The next bit, 
is good when um, Elsie, who, who I insist on writing in my notice, Elise, I think I, um, I'm making her a bit posher than she is. I probably said that last time as well, because I think I did it last time. So she comes and he pretends he's going out. And that is really, really well done. Not so much from a ghost story point of view, but from two uh, former friends. And she's so much wiser than him. And he is a prig and a cad. And he, he's not as smart as he thinks he is because he, he starts to, you know, he has, and he has airs above his station, really. I don't know who he thinks he is to treat her like this. It's rotten. And she's very perspicacious. She's got a piercing mind, this woman. Um, and then he, he's resentful of her and he starts to talk about, you know, about women who earn their own living and how they sacrifice so much. And he pretends to be sympathetic towards this, but he's really just sticking a knife in and falling back on the petty prejudices of, he's already condemned Barrett. He's already had a go at Barrett for Barrett's um, ideas about things not being right, you know, about the people shouldn't, unmarried people shouldn't, unmarried ladies and men shouldn't uh, mix. And here he is with his own prejudices about, uh, and, uh, and Onions is good in this because we, we kind of suspect that Onions is, well, how could he write Elsie if he didn't agree with her? Mm, we may take issue on that. I don't know if that's true. But that's what I think anyway. I think he's, Onions is on Elsie's side. And who wouldn't be? Because she is by far the better person. So um, that's good. She see, he's just pathetic, you know, and idiotic. Um, and then we have section nine. He goes to the vicar. And this is a bit, this is actually useful. This moves the plot on. And we find out that there was somebody there, a painter, so not a writer, but a painter, but somebody who would be, expected to be affected by the muse and this guy starved himself to death so this is a little bit of foreshadowing because we as readers know we're pretty sure this is what's going to happen to him if he isn't careful uh, he doesn't know that yet but we do we've got, aha so that's a nice piece of foreshadowing and it moves things forward and then he goes back and he's becoming increasingly crazed and um, the first part, I thought, well, yeah, definitely, definitely this is a ghost. But now I can see how people think that it's just him going mad. He starts to woo this spirit. He, he talks to her and he tries to play games with her as if she's some lover. And he does them in a really crap way. You know, he tries to make her jealous and, and then he thinks about um, bringing Elsie. But at least he isn't that low. And he dismisses that idea as a, a wheel to break a butterfly on. Um, so unnecessarily. It's a nice, I like that phrase. There we go. At least he's not that bad. He's pretty bad. And then, oh, do you know, he goes out to the country to try and make this spirit jealous. And he just becomes crackers, really. The beckoner. He calls her Romilly at one point. So section nine is all about him trying to woo the beckoner and ends when he sees this uh, reflection, which is her using his comb to comb her long, invisible spirit hair, and it gets a little crackle from the electricity. Now, you may be a woman, or you may be a man listening to this, or you may, I don't know, but there's not many women that I've known in my long and illustrious life who would use my comb to comb their hair. I'm not saying it's never happened. But as the years have gone on, it's become less frequent. In fact, I think it's probably happened once or twice in my life. It's just not going to happen, is it? So even a ghost woman's not going to use his comb. So that was an unconvincing thing. What does onions know about women, eh? Mm. Makes you wonder, doesn't it? Although he's, he's, Elsie's pretty good, so there we are. And then section 10, we have him as a recluse buying all the flowers to woo the, the room. And is the room and the ghost the same? Are they the same thing? You know, he talks about the room, oh, you pretty, pretty. And he becomes pretty much agoraphobic. This is just an aside. He doesn't make very much of this. But I think because of the descriptions of it, it sounds pretty spot on. It sounds like Onions knows something or has experienced agoraphobia or known somebody closely who's experienced agoraphobia so it's all this is all good it's it's only the musings i don't like uh, then he thinks he sees elsie's skirt and we painted a horrible picture of older on here because he he's concerned and he's worried that the spirit woman the beckoner will kill elsie it does cross his mind but he then thinks elsie coming here his worry is that it would it would it would compromise him and ruin his chances with the beckoner 
And, you know, I mean, apart from being crazy, it's just, again, caddish, really, isn't it? And then we have Elsie coming in her last desperate mission to try and save this totally unworthy friend of hers, really. He, he deserves what he's going to get, really, and Elsie's far too good for him. But she comes to try and save him. And then what well, the good bit here is, of course, we have a bit of an insane man. And I've read quite a lot of these stories now, as you'll imagine. So we've got the yellow wallpaper, we've got the hauler, we've got uh, quite a lot of Poe, Edgar Allan Poe. And the, he, Poe, is pr- particularly good at doing ranting insane people. This is one of these, ha-ha, musing to himself with insane laughter and overdone histrionic dialogue, which is a lot of fun to read out. So I enjoyed that bit. But it, Onions is good in that he has... It's counterbalanced by Elsie's humanity, really. Uh, so I think that's, that's really well done. So that, I said I wasn't going to go on, didn't I? And then I just went on. But anyway, so podcast number's going down just a teensy bit, but it, could be, it would be good if you could share it and recommend it and get people to listen. Next thing, the book, London Horror Stories. I've put it up free for my patrons. You know, I've got 12 patrons now and I'm really grateful to them for their ongoing support. I'm also grateful to people who buy me coffee. I'm grateful. I'm just grateful. But um, yeah, so for the Patreons, you can get a copy of my book, uh, either as PDF, ebook, or a Kindle version on my Patreon, but it's only for Patreons. And again, I'm just trying to build uh, value to say thank you to them, really. Um, so the book's doing okay. Um, it could do with a few reviews. I've had some nice comments, but I could do with some Amazon reviews. Just saying, you know, if you don't ask, you don't get then, uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. So there we are. Last lap next time, and then we'll move on from the Beckoning Fair one. I'll probably put it all together as one long thing without my commentary. So you'll be able to get that as an MP3, the whole story. I did that with Carmilla, and I think it just, you know, it's just, it's just uninterrupted by my blathering. So anyway, take care. Speak to you next week. Bye.